Welcome to Quiet Stories, stories to quiet your mind and lull you to sleep. In this episode, we'll be reading two short stories by Guy de Maupassant, The Diamond Necklace and In the Spring. The French author was renowned as a master of the short story form and is best known for his surprise endings. Maupassant was a member of the Naturalist School, a literary movement that depicted characters and scenes realistically and often pessimistically as opposed to the unrealistic portrayals found in Romanticism, a preceding literary style. This episode is dedicated to everyone falling asleep after enjoying the very first signs of spring. The Diamond Necklace The girl was one of those pretty and charming young creatures who sometimes are born as if by a slip of fate into a family of clerks. She had no dowry, no expectations, no way of being known, understood, loved, married by any rich and distinguished man. So she let herself be married to a little clerk of the Ministry of Public Instruction. She dressed plainly because she could not dress well, but she was unhappy as if she had really fallen from a higher station. Since with women there is neither caste nor rank, for beauty, grace, and charm take the place of family and birth. Natural ingenuity, instinct for what is elegant, a supple mind are their sole hierarchy, and often make of women of the people the equals of the very greatest ladies. Mathilde suffered ceaselessly, feeling herself born to enjoy all delicacies and luxuries. She was distressed at the poverty of her own dwelling, at the bareness of the walls, at the shabby chairs, the ugliness of the curtains. All those things, of which another woman of her rank would never even have been conscious, tortured her and made her angry. The sight of the little Breton peasant, who did her humble housework, aroused in her despairing regrets and bewildering dreams. She thought of silent antechambers hung with oriental tapestry, illuminated by tall bronze candelabra, and of two great footmen in knee breeches who sleep in the big armchairs, made drowsy by the oppressive heat of the stove. She thought of long reception halls hung with ancient silk, of the dainty cabinets containing priceless curiosities, and of the little, coquettish, perfumed reception rooms made for chatting at five o'clock with intimate friends, with men famous and sought after, whom all women envy, and whose attention they all desire. When she sat down to dinner, before the round table, covered with a tablecloth, in use three days, opposite her husband, who uncovered the soup tureen, and declared with a delighted air, Ah, the good soup! I don't know anything better than that. She thought of dainty dinners, of shining silverware, of tapestry that peopled the walls with ancient personages and with strange birds flying in the midst of a fairy forest. And she thought of delicious dishes served on marvelous plates and of the whispered gallantries to which you listen with a sphinx-like smile while you are eating the pink meat of a trout or the wings of a quail. She had no gowns, no jewels, nothing, and she loved nothing but that. She felt made for that, 
She would have liked so much to please, to be envied, to be charming, to be sought after. She had a friend, a former schoolmate at the convent, who was rich and whom she did not like to go to see anymore because she felt so sad when she came home. But one evening, her husband reached home with a triumphant air and holding a large envelope in his hand. There, he said, there is something for you. She tore the paper quickly and drew out a printed card which bore these words, The Minister of Public Instruction and Madame Georges Rapinou request the honor of Monsieur and Madame Loisel's company at the Palace of the Ministry on Monday evening, January 18th. Instead of being delighted, as her husband had hoped, she threw the invitation on the table crossly, muttering, What do you wish me to do with that? Why, my dear, I thought you would be glad. You never go out, and this is such a fine opportunity. I had great trouble to get it. Everyone wants to go, it is very select, and they are not giving many invitations to clerks. The whole official world will be there. She looked at him with an irritated glance and said impatiently, And what do you wish me to put on my back? He had not thought of that. He stammered, Why, the gown you go to the theater in. It looks very well to me. He stopped, distracted, seeing that his wife was weeping. Two great tears ran slowly from the corners of her eyes toward the corners of her mouth. What's the matter? he answered. By a violent effort, she conquered her grief and replied in a calm voice while she wiped her wet cheeks. Nothing, only I have no gown, and therefore I can't go to this ball. Give your card to some colleague whose wife is better equipped than I am. He was in despair. He resumed. Come, let us see, Mathilde. How much would it cost? A suitable gown, which you could use on other occasions. Something very simple. She reflected several seconds, making her calculations, and wondering also what sums she could ask without drawing on herself an immediate refusal and a frightened exclamation from the economical clerk. Finally, she replied, hesitating, I don't know exactly, but I think I could manage it with four hundred francs. He grew a little pale because he was laying aside just that amount to buy a gun and treat himself to a little shooting next summer on the plain of Nanterre, with several friends who went to shoot larks there of a Sunday. But he said, very well, I will give you four hundred francs and try to have a pretty gown. The day of the ball drew near, and Madame Loisel seemed sad, uneasy, anxious. Her frock was ready, however. Her husband said to her, one evening, What is the matter? Come, you have seemed very queer these last three days. And she answered, It annoys me not to have a single piece of jewelry, not a single ornament, nothing to put on. I shall look poverty-stricken. I would almost rather not go at all. You might wear natural flowers, said her husband. They're very stylish at this time of year. For ten francs, you can get two or three magnificent roses. She was not convinced. No, there's nothing more humiliating than to look poor among other women who are rich. How stupid you are, her husband cried. Go look up your friend, Madame Foristier, and ask her to lend you some jewels. You're intimate enough with her to do that. 
she uttered a cry of joy. True, I never thought of it. The next day, she went to her friend and told her of her distress. Madame Forestier went to a wardrobe with a mirror, took out a large jewel box, brought it back, opened it, and said to Madame Loiselle, Choose, my dear. She saw first some bracelets, then a pearl necklace, then a Venetian gold cross set with precious stones of admirable workmanship. She tried on the ornaments before the mirror, hesitated, and could not make up her mind to part with them, to give them back. She kept asking, Haven't you any more? Why, yes, look further. I don't know what you like. Suddenly she discovered, in a black satin box, a superb diamond necklace, and her heart throbbed with an immoderate desire. Her hands trembled as she took it. She fastened it round her throat, outside her high-necked waist, and was lost in ecstasy at her reflection in the mirror. Then she asked, hesitating, filled with anxious doubt, Will you lend me this, only this? Why, yes, certainly. She threw her arms round her friend's neck, kissed her passionately, then fled with her treasure. The night of the ball arrived. Madame Loiselle was a great success. She was prettier than any other woman present, elegant, graceful, smiling, and wild with joy. All the men looked at her, asked her name, sought to be introduced, and all attachés of the cabinet wished to waltz with her. She was remarked by the minister himself. She danced with rapture, with passion, intoxicated by pleasure, forgetting all in the triumph of her beauty, in the glory of her success, in a sort of cloud of happiness, comprised of all this homage, admiration, these awakened desires, and of that sense of triumph which is so sweet to a woman's heart. She left the ball about four o'clock in the morning. Her husband had been sleeping since midnight in a little deserted anteroom with three other gentlemen whose wives were enjoying the ball. He threw over her shoulders the wraps he had brought, the modest wraps of common life, the poverty of which contrasted with the elegance of the ball dress. She felt this and wished to escape so as not to be remarked by other women who were enveloping themselves in costly furs. Loiselle held her back, saying, Wait a bit, you will catch cold outside. I will call a cab. But she did not listen to him and rapidly descended the stairs. When they reached the street, they could not find a carriage and began to look for one, shouting after the cabmen passing at a distance. They went toward the Seine in despair, shivering with cold. At last, they found on the quay one of those ancient nightcabs, which, as though they were ashamed to show their shabbiness during the day, are never seen round Paris until after dark. It took them to their dwelling in the Rue de Marrière, and sadly they mounted the stairs to their flat. All was ended for her. As to him, he reflected that he must be at the ministry at ten o'clock in the morning. She removed her wraps before the glass so as to see herself once more in all her glory. But suddenly, she uttered a cry. She no longer had the necklace around her neck. What is the matter with you? demanded her husband, already half undressed. 
she turned distractedly toward him. I have, I have, I've lost Madame Forestier's necklace, she cried. He stood up, bewildered. What? How? Impossible. They looked among the folds of her skirt, of her cloak, in her pockets, everywhere, but did not find it. You're sure you had it on when you left the ball, he asked. Yes, I felt it in the vestibule of the minister's house. But if you had lost it in the street, we should have heard it fall. It must be in the cab. Yes, probably. Did you take his number? No. And you... didn't you notice it? No. They looked, thunderstruck at each other. At last, Loisel put on his clothes. I shall go back on foot, he said, over the whole route, to see whether I can find it. He went out. She sat waiting on a chair in her ball dress, without strength to go to bed, overwhelmed, without any fire, without a thought. Her husband returned about seven o'clock. He had found nothing. He went to police headquarters, to the newspaper offices to offer a reward. He went to the cab companies, everywhere in fact, whither he was urged by the least spark of hope. She waited all day, in the same condition of mad fear, before this terrible calamity. Loisel returned at night with a hollow, pale face. He had discovered nothing. You must write to your friend, he said, that you have broken the clasp of her necklace and that you are having it mended. That will give us time to turn round. She wrote at his dictation. At the end of a week, they had lost all hope. Loisel, who had aged five years, declared, We must consider how to replace that ornament. The next day, they took the box that had contained it and went to the jeweler whose name was found within. He consulted his books. It was not I, madame, who sold that necklace. I must simply have furnished the case. Then they went from jeweler to jeweler, searching for a necklace like the other, trying to recall it, both sick with chagrin and grief. They found, in a shop at the Palais Royal, a string of diamonds that seemed to them exactly like the one they had lost. It was worth 40,000 francs. They could have it for 36. So they begged the jeweler not to sell it for three days yet, and they made a bargain that he should buy it back for 34,000 francs in case they should find the lost necklace before the end of February. Loisel possessed 18,000 francs, which his father had left him. He could borrow the rest. He did borrow, asking a thousand francs of one, five hundred of another, five louis here, three louis there. He gave notes, took up ruinous obligations, dealt with assurers, and all the race of lenders. He compromised all the rest of his life, risked signing a note without even knowing whether he could meet it, and frightened by the trouble yet to come, by the black misery that was about to fall upon him, by the prospect of all the physical privations and moral tortures that he was to suffer, he went to get the new necklace, laying upon the jeweler's counter 36,000 francs. When Madame Loisel took back the necklace, Madame Feristier said to her with a chilly manner, You should have returned it sooner, I might have needed it. She did not open the case, as her friend had so much feared. If she had detected the substitution, 
What would she have thought? What would she have said? Would she have not taken Madame Loisel for a thief? Thereafter, Madame Loisel knew the horrible existence of the needy. She bore her part, however, with sudden heroism. That dreadful debt must be paid. She would pay it. They dismissed their servant. They changed their lodgings. They rented a garret under the roof. She came to know what heavy housework meant and the odious cares of the kitchen. She washed the dishes, using her dainty fingers and rosy nails on greasy pots and pans. She washed the soiled linen, the shirts and the dishcloths, which she dried upon a line. She carried the slops down to the street every morning and carried up the water, stopping for breath at every landing. And dressed like a woman of the people, she went to the fruitier, the grocer, the butcher, a basket on her arm, bargaining, meeting with impertinence, defending her miserable money, sou by sou. Every month they had to meet some notes, renew others, obtain more time. Her husband worked evenings, making up a tradesman's accounts, and late at night he often copied manuscript for five sous a page. This life lasted ten years. At the end of ten years, they had paid everything, everything, with the rates of usury and the accumulations of the compound interest. Madame Loisel looked old now. She had become the woman of impoverished households, strong and hard and rough, with frowsy hair, skirts askew, and red hands. She talked loud while washing the floor with great swishes of water. But sometimes, when her husband was at the office, she sat down near the window and she thought of that gay evening of long ago, of that ball where she had been so beautiful and so admired. What would have happened if she had not lost that necklace? Who knows? Who knows? How strange and changeful is life, how small a thing is needed to make or ruin us. But one Sunday, having gone to take a walk in the Champs-Élysées to refresh herself after the labors of the week, she suddenly perceived a woman who was leading a child. It was Madame Feristier, still young, still beautiful, still charming. Madame Loisel felt moved. Should she speak to her? Yes, certainly. And now that she had paid, she could tell her all about it. Why not? She went up. Good day, Jean. The other, astonished to be familiarly addressed by this plain good wife, did not recognize her at all and stammered. But, madam, I do not know. You must be mistaken. No, I am Mathilde Loisel. Her friend uttered a cry. Oh, my poor Mathilde, how you are changed. Yes, I have had a pretty hard life since I last saw you, and a great poverty, and that because of you. Of me? How so? Do you remember that diamond necklace you let me to wear at the ministerial ball? Yes. Well? Well, I lost it. What do you mean you brought it back? I brought you back another exactly like it, and it has taken us ten years to pay for it. You can understand that it was not easy for us, for us who had nothing. At last it has ended, and I am very glad. 
Madame Forestier had stopped. You say that you bought a necklace of diamonds to replace mine? Yes, you never noticed it then. They were very similar. And she smiled with a joy that was at once proud and ingenuous. Madame Forestier, deeply moved, took her hands. Oh, my poor Mathilde, why my necklace was paste. It was worth at most only five hundred francs. And now for our second story, In the Spring. With the first day of spring, when the awakening earth puts on its garment of green and the warm, fragrant air fans our faces and fills our lungs and appears even to penetrate to our hearts, we experience a vague, undefined longing for freedom, for happiness, a desire to run, to wander aimlessly, to breathe in the spring. The previous winter, having been unusually severe, this spring feeling was like a form of intoxication in May, as if there were an overabundant supply of sap. One morning, on waking, I saw from my window the blue sky glowing in the sun above the neighboring houses. The canaries, hanging in the windows, were singing loudly, and so were the servants on every floor. A cheerful noise rose up from the streets, and I went out, my spirits as bright as the day, to go. I did not exactly know where. Everybody I met seemed to be smiling. An air of happiness appeared to pervade everything in the warm light of the returning spring. One might almost have said that a breeze of love was blowing through the city, and the sight of the young woman whom I saw in the streets in their morning toilets, in the depths of whose eyes there lurked a hidden tenderness, and who walked with languid grace, filled my heart with agitation. Without knowing how, or why, I found myself on the banks of the Seine. Steamboats were starting for Surhen, and suddenly I was seized by an unconquerable desire to take a walk through the woods. The deck of the Mouche was covered with passengers, for the sun in early spring draws one out of the house, in spite of themselves, and everybody moves about, goes and comes, and talks to his neighbor. I had a girl neighbor, a little work girl, no doubt, who possessed a true Parisian charm, a little head with light curly hair, which looked like a shimmer of light as it danced in the wind, came down to her ears, and descended to the nape of her neck, where it became such a fine, light-colored clown that one could scarcely see it, but felt an irresistible desire to shower kisses on it. Under my persistent gaze, she turned her head toward me, and then immediately looked down, while a slight crease at the side of her mouth that was ready to break out into a smile also showed a fine, silky, pale down, which the sun was gilding a little. The calm river grew wider, the atmosphere was warm and perfectly still, but a murmur of life seemed to fill all space. My neighbor raised her eyes again, and this time, as I was still looking at her, she smiled decidedly. She was charming, and in her passing glance, I saw a thousand things, which I had hitherto been ignorant of, 
for I perceived unknown depths, all the charm of tenderness, all the poetry which we dream of, all the happiness which we are continually in search of. I felt an insane longing to open my arms and to carry her off somewhere, so as to whisper the sweet music of words of love into her ears. I was just about to address her when somebody touched me on the shoulder, and as I turned round in some surprise, I saw an ordinary-looking man who was neither young nor old, and who gazed at me sadly. I should like to speak to you, he said. I made a grimace, which he no doubt saw, for he added, It is a matter of importance. I got up, therefore, and followed him to the other end of the boat, and then he said, Monsieur, when winter comes, with its cold, wet, and snowy weather, your doctor says to you constantly, Keep your feet warm, guard against chills, colds, bronchitis, rheumatism, and pleurisy. Then you are very careful, you wear flannel, a heavy greatcoat, and thick shoes. But all this does not prevent you from passing two months in bed. But when spring returns, with its leaves and flowers, its warm, soft breezes, and its smell of the fields, all of which causes you vague disquiet and causeless emotion, nobody says to you, Monsieur, beware of love. It is lying in ambush everywhere. It is watching for you at every corner. All its snares are laid. All its weapons are sharpened. All its guiles are prepared. Beware of love. Beware of love. It is more dangerous than brandy, bronchitis, or pleurisy. It never forgives and makes everybody commit irreparable follies. Yes, monsieur. I say that the French government ought to put large public notices on the walls with these words, Return of Spring, French citizens. Beware of love, just as they put beware of paint. However, as the government will not do this, I must supply its place, and I say to you, Beware of love, for it is just going to seize you, and it is my duty to inform you of it, just as in Russia they inform anyone that his nose is frozen. I was much astonished at this individual, and assuming a dignified manner, I said, Really, monsieur, you appear to me to be interfering in a matter which is no concern of yours. He made an abrupt movement and replied, Ah, monsieur, monsieur, if I see that a man is in danger of being drowned at a dangerous spot, ought I let him perish? So just listen to my story, and you will see why I ventured to speak to you like this. It was about this time last year that it occurred. But first of all, I must tell you that I am a clerk at the Admiralty, where our chiefs, the commissioners, take their gold lace as quill-driving officials seriously, and treat us like forecastle men on board a ship. Well, from my office I could see a small bit of blue sky, and the swallows, and I felt inclined to dance among my portfolios. My yearning for freedom grew so intense that in spite of my repugnance, I went to see my chief, a short, bad-tempered man who was always in a rage. When I told him that I was not well, he looked at me and said, I do not believe it, monsieur. 
but be off with you. Do you think that any office can go on with clerks like you? I started at once and went down the Seine. It was a day like this, and I took the Mouche to go as far as St. Cloud. Ah, what a good thing it would have been if my chief had refused me permission to leave the office that day. I seemed to myself to expand in the sun. I loved everything, the steamer, the river, the trees, the houses, and my fellow passengers. I felt inclined to kiss something, no matter what. It was love laying its snare. Presently, at the Trocadero, a girl with a small parcel in her hand came on board and sat down opposite me. She was decidedly pretty, but it is surprising, monsieur, how much prettier women seem to us when the day is fine at the beginning of spring. Then they have an intoxicating charm, something quite peculiar about them. It is just like drinking wine after cheese. I looked at her, and she also looked at me, but only occasionally, as that girl did at you just now. But at last, by dint of looking at each other constantly, it seemed to me that we knew each other well enough to enter into conversation, and I spoke to her, and she replied. She was decidedly pretty and nice, and she intoxicated me, monsieur. She got out at St. Cloud, and I followed her. She went and delivered her parcel, and when she returned, the boat had just started. I walked by her side, and the warmth of the air made us both sigh. It would be very nice in the woods, I said. Indeed, it would, she replied. Shall we go there for a walk, mademoiselle? She gave me a quick, upward look, as if to see exactly what I was like, and then, after a little hesitation, she accepted my proposal, and soon we were there, walking side by side. Under the foliage, which was still rather scanty, the tall, thick, bright green grass was inundated by the sun, and the air was full of insects that were also making love to one another and birds were singing in all directions. My companion began to jump and to run, intoxicated by the air and the smell of the country, and I ran and jumped, following her example. How silly we are at times, monsieur. Then she sang, unrestrainedly, a thousand things, opera airs and the song of Musette. How poetical it seemed to me then. I almost cried over it. Ah, those silly songs make us lose our heads. And believe me, never marry a woman who sings in the country, especially if she sings the song of Musette. She soon grew tired and sat down on a grassy slope, and I sat at her feet and took her hands, her little hands that were so marked with the needle that they filled me with emotion. I said to myself, These are the sacred marks of toil. Oh, monsieur, do you know what those sacred marks of toil mean? They mean all the gossip of the workroom, the whispered scandal, the mind soiled by all the filth that is talked. They mean lost chastity, foolish chatter, all the wretchedness of their everyday life, all the narrowness of ideas which belong to women of the lower orders, combined to their fullest extent in the girl whose fingers bear the sacred marks of toil. 
Then we looked into each other's eyes for a long while. Oh, what power a woman's eye has. How it agitates us. How it invades our very being, takes possession of us, and dominates us. How profound it seems. How full of infinite promises. People call that looking into each other's souls. Oh, monsieur, what humbug. If we could see into each other's souls, we should be more careful of what we did. However, I was captivated and was crazy about her and tried to take her into my arms, but she said, pause off. Then I knelt down and opened my heart to her and poured out all the affection that was suffocating me. She seemed surprised at my change of manner and gave me a sidelong glance as if to say, ah, so that is the way women make a fool of you, old fellow. Very well, we will see. In love, monsieur, we are always novices, and women, artful dealers. No doubt, I could have had her, and I saw my own stupidity later, but what I wanted was not a woman's person, it was love, it was the ideal. I was sentimental, when I ought to have been using my time to a better purpose. As soon as she had had enough of my declarations of affection, she got up, and we returned to St. Cloud, and I did not leave her until we got to Paris. But she had looked so sad as we were returning, that at last I asked her what was the matter. I am thinking, she replied, that this has been one of those days of which we have but few in life. My heart beat so that it felt as if it would break in my ribs. I saw her on the following Sunday, and the next Sunday, and every Sunday. I took her to Bougival, Saint-Germain, Maison Lafitte, Puessy, to every suburban resort of lovers. The little jade, in turn, pretended to love me, until at last I altogether lost my head, and three months later I married her. What can you expect, monsieur, when a man is a clerk, living alone, without any relations, or anyone to advise him? One says to oneself, how sweet life would be with such a wife. And so one gets married, and she calls you names from morning till night, understands nothing, knows nothing, chatters continually, sings the song of Musette at the top of her voice. Oh, that song of Musette, how tired one gets of it. Quarrels with the charcoal dealer, tells the janitor all her domestic details, confides all the secrets of her bedroom to the neighbor's servant, discusses her husband with the tradespeople, and has her head so stuffed with stupid stories, with idiotic superstitions, with extraordinary ideas, and monstrous prejudices, that I, for what I have said, applies more particularly to myself, shed tears of discouragement every time I talk to her. He stopped, as he was rather out of breath and very much moved, and I looked at him, for I felt pity for this poor, artless devil, and I was just going to give him some sort of answer when the boat stopped. We were at St. Cloud. The little woman who had so taken my fancy rose from her seat in order to land. She passed close to me and gave me a sidelong glance and a furtive smile, one of those smiles that drive you wild. Then she jumped on the landing stage. I sprang forward to follow her, 
but my neighbor laid hold of my arm. I shook myself loose, however, whereupon he seized the skirt of my coat and pulled me back, exclaiming, You shall not go, you shall not go, in such a loud voice that everybody turned round and laughed, and I remained standing motionless and furious, but without venturing to face scandal and ridicule, and the steamboat started. The little woman on the landing stage looked at me as I went off with an air of disappointment, while my persecutor rubbed his hands and whispered to me, You must acknowledge that I have done you a great service.